0: Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Midtown Business Radio. What is up, everyone? It is CW. Thank you for checking out the Midtown Business Radio show. If you're a business executive or an entrepreneur business owner, you're definitely going to want to check out today's episode. We've all heard the news stories coming to us over the last couple of years about data breaches coming through our government as well as major companies that we're all familiar with. Increased use of the Internet, the Internet of Things with smart devices with an array of sensors on them that communicate via a network and even network technology in and of itself have all been evolving greatly over the last few years and sometimes faster than technology can keep up with plugging all the security holes in these various networks and devices. If you couple that with relationships that a company might have with particular vendors who have a portal of access into a company's network or database to be able to conduct business with them as a supplier or a vendor, that can also be a point of entry for nefarious activity, as was the case with Target. Their breach occurred through a backdoor that came in through a vendor relationship there. My guest this week, are certainly subject matter experts on the topic of information and data security. David Katz is a partner and attorney with Nelson Mullins Riley in Scarborough, and he heads up the privacy and information security practice for the group. He'll be sharing some great information about the legal considerations around data security. Brian Mikes is a vice president with Marsh USA. They're a well-known insurance company that provides industry-focused consulting, brokerage and claims advocacy services, as well as leveraging data, technology and analytics to help their clients reduce total cost of risk. And that includes expertise in the field of information security and risk associated with that. David and Brian get into how to evaluate the status of your information and network security, how and why to have an incident response plan whether it makes sense to hire an outside security company, and what you should think about if you're going to do so. We got into what to do in the immediate aftermath of discovering that a data breach has occurred with your enterprise. And we'll also talk about EMV compliance and whether or not your business should consider a cyber liability policy. So don't go anywhere. I've got David Katz and Brian Mikes coming up next to talk about cybersecurity for your business. Check it out. Good morning, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Midtown Business Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. Pleased to have you joining us. And we're going to be talking to a couple of experts who can talk about data security and and what that means for your enterprise, how to go about protecting yourself and things to think about and what happens in, in case there is some sort of a breach that is uncovered. So I've got with me in studio from Nelson Mullins Riley and Scarborough, a large law firm here in the Atlanta area, actually upstairs from us. They're neighbors. We've got David Katz. He leads their division that heads up the uh, information security side of things.
1: Hey, CW. So great to be with you today and all your listeners. Thank you.
0: And then we've also got Brian Mikes of Marsh USA, Vice President of FinPro Client Advisors. Thanks for taking some time to join us. Thanks for having us, CW. So take a minute and, and and introduce us to Marsh Brian, and then we'll we'll do the same thing. We'll take a snapshot of Nelson Mullins Riley and Scarborough, or Nelson Mullins, as they like to refer to it a lot of times for short. So introduce us to Marsh.
2: Marsh is uh, one of the leading uh, insurance brokerage firms in the in the world, uh, headquartered up in New York. Regional offices uh, around the country. Uh, Atlanta is the regional hub for the Southeast. Uh, I work with the financial and professional lines team. We have a team of 18 folks uh, almost entirely here in Atlanta that focus on uh, management, liability, and executive
0: lines of insurance. How about Nelson Mullins and Riley Riley Scarborough?
1: Uh, We're a 508-member law firm headquartered in Columbia, South Carolina, and we have offices uh, up and down the East Coast from Boston to Tallahassee, Florida. We're a full-service law firm and um, very pleased to be with you today. I lead the privacy and security practice here out of Atlanta and uh, very excited to talk to folks about this topic.
0: What got you interested in that
1: particular
0: focus of, of law practice?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, I was an in-house lawyer for seven years at a public company here in Atlanta. And uh, I was able to, to see over the last uh, years, really since 2012, um, how important it was to, to understand the kind of data that was being retained by the corporation, how it was being secured. And I had some opportunities to lead uh, an effort. Uh, at the company where I was working before and uh, really uh, had a great experience doing that and wanted to to take that expertise out into the market and help other clients develop uh, privacy and security uh, for their companies.
0: Well, it's certainly been in the news the last two or three, four years, big breaches uh, of obviously some major global corporations, as well as the U.S. government, IRS, uh, and other aspects of our government have been breached, and exposing both proprietary information as well as consumer data to nefarious activities. Um, So when it comes to being a business owner or business executive in one of these enterprises, large or small, I mean, what do we need to be aware of as it relates to the legal implications of that? I would imagine that probably exposes me to some measure of liability, potentially, particularly if I haven't gotten all of my bases covered with regards to how I've been protecting that data. So what do I need to be aware of in
1: that situation? Certainly, no. I I think just a quick comment on the environment. I mean, it really is the sort of level at which we're seeing um, data compromised and data at risk is probably unprecedented um, in terms of risk to the economy and to individuals um, for fraud and identity theft. So, um, I think generally, the awareness of of the risk is is very well understood. I, I think, to your point about you know, are the legal implications really understood? I, I think that many people may not appreciate that individual states have laws that govern uh, incident response and data security and data protection, and that it's really critical as you're responsible for protecting data within your company, that you understand that your obligations uh, really extend to any state in which you are gathering data of those individual residents. So although you may be headquartered in Georgia and feel really comfortable with Georgia's data protection statute, um, you may have obligations in California to consumers. You may have obligations really across the country. And so one thing that I think it's very important for executives to think about is that there are a breakdown of state laws that they should generally be familiar with. You know, for example, there are 31 states Um, that have a definition of personally identifiable information that's broader uh, than the standard definition. And just to to give you some of that background, um, when we talk about personally identifiable information, it really is the first and last name, social security number, driver's license number, an account number, credit card, debit card, um, security code and access code, PIN and password to access that account. So that's the standard definition. Um, And so some people think, well, we're not really maintaining that types of, that type of data, but in reality, there's some states where that definition's broader. So, um, And there are, different, there are different requirements for um, when you have to make that notification. There are some states, there are three, in fact, that it's just triggered by access alone, so there doesn't actually have to be any compromise. It's just that it's been accessed. There are 27 states that require you to notify the attorney general. So just in terms of pure legal implications, when you have a security incident, in some instances... In, in 27 instances, you're required to go on the record with the state regulator, which is the AG, the Attorney General. So uh, it immediately sort of ramps up the, um, the, the pressure um, to make those notifications and to have them be accurate and timely. So those, those are really the legal implications of an incident. And then, you know, if you're in a regulated industry not just consumer protection and consumer data. You may have other obligations. So
0: they're doing this in writing, I guess. They're submitting some sort of a filed report, apparently, with these agencies that says this is what happened. This is the extent of the breach as we know it.
1: Exactly. And, and the time frame in some of these states requires you to notify very quickly to be able to tell the AG that you've at least had an an incident. In Connecticut, for example, you have to notify within 14 days of of what happened. And so you know, you may not have all the facts, but you have to at least tell them, hey, we've had an issue and we're looking into to um, what's happened here and we'll we'll update you. The other thing that some of the states, California in particular, and others, they will post what you provide them online. So you will immediately be on the record after you've filed the notification and and those are indexed by Google, so they're able to come <laughs> up in a search if you do the search for the name of the company. So you know, having it having making sure that you've, are prepared to do that and know all the facts is is critically important.
0: Well, listening to you describe the various state requirements around the country, it's clear that by linking up with someone such as yourself, they're going to have access to that kind of advice. They'll be able to say, in this case, you will be able to say to your client, "This this is what you need to be thinking about. And hopefully they're linking up with you in advance of an event. Clearly, being able to navigate something once a breach has occurred, if they're not in a relationship with you, clearly you'd be able to help guide them. But it would seem that having a relationship well ahead of time when we're maintaining client and customer data, having somebody like yourself be able to say, I would assume you can advise me on how do I protect my information to begin with to
1: keep the breach from happening. Sure. And just, you know, on your last point, I mean, these are oftentimes crisis events for companies. And so, you know, the the Chinese symbol for crisis is a combination of letters for danger and opportunity. Mm. So, you know, there is um, a certain measure of advanced planning, like any sort of crisis situation that is going to be incredibly valuable. And the corporations and companies that are typically the best in terms of a response are companies that already have a very strong culture of communication. They're able to, to very easily begin to identify the issue, assign individuals to help manage the issue, and come up with a very good product and response. So that pre-planning cannot be overemphasized.
0: Well, let's talk about what the business owner or those CXO people need to be thinking about right now but maybe the breach hasn't happened how do we need to try to prevent that from happening i've heard it said that it's it's not if it'll happen it'll it's when it will happen will someone either attempt or successfully breach your information on some level so what do they need to be thinking about today to hopefully either thwart that altogether
1: or at least mitigate it when it happens sure i mean i I think one of the things that is is absolutely critical is the organization has to understand the nature uh, of the data and the types of data that they're maintaining on their customer base and and that may sound uh silly to suggest that a business may not always understand the type of data it's um it's gathering but you know consistently we find that you know after a breach you know companies are sometimes struggling to determine okay wh- where was this data where where how was it protected what was the nature of the data so the time that you spend on the on uh, uh, up front I guess the simplest way to describe it is really a data audit and inventory. Um, and it involves um, you know really going through the company and understanding you know how are we collecting, storing, accessing, securing, and using the information that we co- that we collect? Is it personally identifiable data? Is it name address, telephone number, email? Is it um, sensitive data? is it is it are there are there data elements that would constitute sensitive data like, uh, gender, religion, race, ethnicity, uh, things that might constitute um, that those types of categories of data. And um, you know wh- how are we storing it? And um, who has access to it? Where is it located? How are we storing it physically? How are we storing it uh, in the cloud? How are we retaining it? Um, so once you have a picture of that, it becomes much easier to begin to think about, um, now that we've identified all of this, how do we begin to protect it? You know, understanding what vendors you're using, how those vendors are protecting it, what access they might have, what applications you're using in your business, how those are secured. If they're homegrown, you've developed those for your business, or if they're, you're relying on a third party to uh, to maintain those applications for you. So it's part of the process of really understanding what you have before you can really begin to think about how are we protecting it.
0: I know in the target event that happened, what is it, a couple years ago now, from what I understand, it wasn't target Per se that was breached directly. One of the companies that they have a relationship with through, I don't know if there was a supplier or service provider of some sort, they were the ones that were compromised, but they had some sort of a backdoor port, if you will, that connected into Target's systems that allowed them to penetrate
1: yeah the the third party vendor component of this risk is is one that i don't think people are always so quick to recognize and the way that the state statutes are written around notification is that if you're maintaining the data so you're a third party that's maintaining the data on behalf of the first party who who's the owner of the data your obligation is to notify that first party as the data owner so you might be the vendor that's maintaining the data that you don't own or license, then your obligation is to tell that customer as their vendor, hey, we are letting you know that there's been a breach. Unless you as the first party negotiate that agreement, and we, we can talk more about that, but, but you're right. I mean, the third party risk is, is, a, is a big one, and it's one that um, by contract and through negotiation, is potentially easier to mitigate and to get yourself some assurance upfront uh, around that risk and at least outline what's going to happen if, if things go bad.
2: Well, and David, you talk about the uh, data audit and part of the insurance process from an underwriter's perspective, they'll help uh, clients kind of walk through that process and, and they'll ask the in-depth questions to make sure that the underwriters have a better understanding of the overall preparedness of, of an organization. Um, and and part of that process does dive into the details of how is data stored? Is it encrypted at rest? Is it encrypted in kind of in flow? And then it gets into the vendor management process and and it helps identify the potential areas of weakness. Does an HVAC vendor need to have access to the most critical information that's held by a particular organization, or should they only have access to certain, uh, you know, elements of the network that carry or, or host benign information so to speak so the the data audit um, and that inventory audit are are a critical step and and it's important to identify that and know that up front
0: it's interesting to have you all here in the studio talking about information security from the legal perspective and and from risk mitigation as well a few days ago I was interviewing a gentleman from a local company that does Data security as uh, as an outsourced service provider. So when we're talking about the upfront assessment, if you will, finding out where we are today on our information sh- security practices and the things that we have in place from technology perspective to try to protect our data. I know that some companies, particularly larger ones, will employ someone in the C-suite that that is... The security expert, the, right? Uh, might be folded into the CIO position, maybe to sure. somebody else. But in talking with him, it almost sounded like, given the pace of change around both the protective technology, but as, as well as the threat uh, technology, that it almost makes sense to have it be an outside company. That's all they do, that they focus on that kind
1: of. Sure. Stuff. Yeah. So we, we get asked that question quite a bit and, um, you know, it, it can be, you know, there's sort of multi-levels of analysis that go into, you know, when is the right time, which is the right company, you know, do you have the internal resources right. that you could utilize that would avoid you needing, you know, an outside resource. And I mean, one of the things that I think we're seeing is, you know, they're, they're over, over time, I, I think um, they're starting to be less of this as is an issue, but, you know, the number of people that were really, sort of out of the gate qualified to be doing these kinds of assessments. It's continuing to grow and there are more people getting a certification that would allow them to do it. And it's a CISSP, a Certified Information System Security Professional. And then the position is the Certified Information Security Officer CISO. You're starting to see more people in those positions by virtue of the fact that within the market there are starting to be more people credentialed to do this work, but traditionally those those folks have not been in smaller companies. Maybe in larger companies have been in those roles, and they've typically reported to the chief information uh, the chief information officer. So there's a little bit of a of a movement now, and it's been for some time to sort of separate that person out, give them the independence within the organization to be able to really oversee security make sure those controls are operating and effective and reporting out to you know the board or some other governance authority within the organization a management committee that's been uh, established to manage just information you know so in organizations that have a mature process there may be less of a need because they've already done that internal work but if you know if you're if you're if you have um you know within your information um within your information technology shop if you don't have somebody that has a security expertise specifically then, you know, the 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 probably the right thing to do is make sure you're getting help from a third party. And there are lots of third party companies um, in Atlanta that do this work. Atlanta is, is quickly becoming a hub for folks that have this expertise. And I won't name any names just to be fair, but we've worked with a lot of these companies. And one of the things I think you need to understand going in as the business is you really have to be, and the data audit and inventory can help you do that. You have to be very focused in terms of what your scope um, is going to be for these assessments. Otherwise, you know, um, you're going to be able to get a, a set, a scope of work done, but you really have to know what the benefit of that is going to be to you and have a clear plan going into that kind of engagement.
0: Do you have some suggestions on what I should ask or look for? If a company's coming to me to say, hey, we're the security experts, we can help you, assess and shore up your data security? Are there particular questions? Like if we're talking to a physician, are they board certified? How many of these procedures have they done? Are there similar things like that in the security world that they should think
1: about? Yes. I mean, it's like hiring any any other vendor. I mean, you want to know that the individuals doing the work are credentialed, um, that they're in good standing for those credentials. Um, But you also want to you know, going into those engagements, really have a good sense of what you're trying to accomplish. And, you know, if your business is one that's regulated and there's a standard that exists, um, you know, HIPAA is a good example, the privacy and security rule. I mean, there's a list of controls that you need to be compliant with under those rules. And so if you if you're in a regulated industry and you understand, hey, these are the standards that apply to us, you, you need to be asking, you know, have you done these assessments based on this standard and how do you go about doing that how much time is involved, You know what's you know the pricing around this, this type of project for the size of our organization. So all those sort of upfront uh, things that are going to help you manage the cost and the scope of that kind of engagement are really critical.
2: Well, not only that, but you want to have a clear understanding of what the um, expectations are for input from your own personnel. That's you know, a lot of times you think that, okay, I'm just going to hire this uh, security firm to come in and assess my overall security posture uh, and they kind of go do their own thing. Well, really for an organization to best identify and understand, you know, an organization's uh, overall kind of exposures in in security posture, they're going to have to conduct interviews with the CISO, with the chief privacy officer, with the chief financial officer, with the treasurer, with folks in the IS and IT teams um, to really get that clear understanding. So it it does go beyond just, um, you know, asking what they're going to do. It's going to be making sure that you are aware of what's required of your own organization and committing the time to that that third party to, to it, it's a partnership is really what it is
0: i was interested to hear that one of the biggest sources of risk is my employees <laughs> With regards right. to opening emails and things like that uh, that expose me to the 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 penetration if you will that opens the door for the actual breach to occur
1: right you know in in the security community, I mean for many many years I mean they have focused on you know awareness security awareness training and one of the things that we've seen since the beginning of the year um, that's been particularly you know damaging to businesses is there was a a phishing attempt that was going around where um, individuals in the hr uh, group were being targeted um by criminal elements um in a spoofed email that it appeared to be coming from um you know someone within the organization and and sending out uh, the W2 information yeah. right around tax time. And so, you know, th- those are examples of where um you know security experts would say you have to have a program in place that can, you know, begin to communicate some of these risks real time to your employees and um to other folks that are in positions that are dealing with sensitive data. So, They understand, um, you know, the various things that are out there that could could trip a company up.
0: Now, I've got McAfee virus shield on my computer, so I know I'm all secure. (laughs) But if a problem happens and a breach occurs, I mean, before one happens, do I, I mean, how much do I really have to have, like, either get on the plane, they're like, the exits are back here. It would seem (laughs) that, that we might need to have something like that lined up for our enterprise, just in case. So I, I think
1: it sounds like you're talking about incident response. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, back to the point of, um, you know, how critical it is to be communicating uh, within your company. I mean, w- what an incident response plan can do is it can establish for you, you know, the roadmap that you need to take once these events happen. And, um, you know, there are elements to this response plan that I think, you know, once I start explaining, you know, will become obvious. You know, you've got to make sure that that that, re- that response plan covers your employees, your third-party contractors, your vendors—that you've established, you know, a clear purpose for that plan. That it's really to review and manage and escalate um, any of those information or physical security incidents or intrusions that happen in your environment. You've got to you've got to figure out internally who's responsible. And one of the things that we're seeing in companies is this really is a group effort. I mean, that incident response team is made up of, um, you know, the CIO the chief privacy officer where they exist, the general counsel, HR, management, IT operations. You know, it, it really is going to involve a corporate-wide response because you have to figure out what happened, what information was impacted, and then you're going to have to communicate, you know, to your employees, to your vendors, um, to your consumers. Um, but the main reason you want one of these plans is because it, it really does become, it, it, it's a live fire event. And people react sometimes strangely when those things happen. So it's always good to be able to pull out a piece of paper and say, "Well, hold on, let's take a breath. What, what does the paper say about what we should be doing now? That's a great idea. You've got a great idea too, but but before we we jumped to anything too drastic, what's our plan? Well, and you we talked
2: a little bit before
1: about having um, you know outside legal
2: counsel involved before an actual event. Um, choosing particular vendors, whether it be for notification, for credit monitoring, you know, it it helps not having choices during a fire, right? If if your roadmap is is set and there is a single way out of it, you've already made all the decisions, you've already done the interviews, you've already kind of spent the time up front to vet the various vendors uh, that are associated with a potential breach. And uh, it, it takes all the guesswork out of it. And that way you can focus on kind of maintaining, um, you know, the due course of the business.
1: Yeah, there, there are other, you know, there, there's a time element to this too. I mean, m- most of the requirements are without unreasonable delay. And some states are 30 days, some states the maximum are 45 days. And so while that might seem like a lot of time when you start to think about weekends and, (laughs) you know, getting people available, I mean, as much of this as you can kind of think through beforehand, um, it's really critical. But also um, that you have to be deliberate and it's not a time, you know, to panic. It's a time to have this sort of well thought out and the response well thought out because, you know, the decisions you're making real time are going to have real impact um, once you notify your consumers and regulators. And so, you just have to have a very thoughtful sort of approach to this.
0: Clearly the large enterprise that's got a either a national or a global presence are going to be targets and they're going to be ones that certainly need to have these plans in place. But I mean, what about the small to mid-sized business? Who needs to be thinking about things strategically and in, in advance along these lines, do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think um, folks are necessarily immune Based on size, because you know this, the the legal triggers for when you're obligated are very clear. And uh, you know what I think you know, smaller to, to mid sized businesses need to be thinking about um, as they're thinking about this risk is um, how to protect their brand in the event that they're legally required to make a notification. Because you know your customers are gonna they're gonna walk away feeling you know victimized at some level, whether it's through any fault of your own or through a criminal act. But the way that you're going to be reestablishing the trust and credibility with your consumer is through the notification. And if it's perceived by the consumer that it's, you know, not substantial or insignificant or the company doesn't handle that well, then then they've really felt victimized twice. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely where you want to avoid being.
0: So when it comes to making my plan, who should be in on setting it? We talked about having outside counsel with someone like yourself and your team that is fully aware of the legal landscape across the country and beyond uh, but should my ceo be getting into that board members or should i leave that to cio the to the security experts who needs to be saying this is what i think we should do
1: yeah brian go ahead. i was just
2: going to say I, I think it has to be the entire c-suite i think the board of directors needs to you know, have oversight into the plan, um, and it it really needs to be set forth by the the leadership of the organization with approval of in guidance from qualified outside counsel that has done this work before. You know, it's we see in our business a, a lot of times, folks will do business with with uh, friends, family members, um, and and for you know certain situations that that ends up being okay. When it comes down to uh, creating an incident response plan related to a cyber event, you want somebody that can walk you through it that's done this before. You want somebody that's knowledgeable about the various state breach notification laws um, and the various regulatory uh, requirements um, that go into this. So it's so important to not just have your senior leadership team involved, but, but qualified counsel in, included.
1: Yeah. I mean, just in terms of who should be involved, I mean, it really depends on the company and, uh, and uh, you know, the company um, where I was previously employed, you know, the executives were very, very close to their customers. I mean, they knew what the customer's expectation was all throughout the business. So, you know, a company like that where, um, you know, the business understands the expectation, you know, maybe somebody in operations is the best person to lead the response, you know, in a company where it's been the employees that have been affected, maybe it's HR that is best able to manage the response. So, I mean, the, the real, the real element that you need to consider is who's closest to the business, who's closest to the most affected population that's going to understand that expectation, be able to communicate, you know, across the enterprise, you know, really everybody on the management team needs to have, um, you know, needs to be involved
0: attorney and legal expert on the matter of information security, David Katz of Nelson Mullins, Riley and Scarborough and Brian Mikes of Marsh USA, risk mitigators and providers of a variety of insurance against breach and and other information type uh, related events. Talk about, Brian, cyber liability. It's- had to come about due to this very thing the rise of the interwebs and now the big business of breaking into these organizations to steal their information who needs to think about having a policy like this in place and when when I am an entity that needs to have cyber liability how do I determine the extent to which I need to to pay from a limit perspective
2: absolutely well as you'd mentioned it's uh, it's Been one of the more evolving areas of insurance over the past, call it 20 years. Um, And and really, the companies that have been, uh, that were initially impacted, were more the highly regulated entities that David had referenced earlier uh, financial institutions, healthcare, retail. And as the world continues to evolve around uh, point of sale systems and, and data security those still are, uh, a major focus, um, in areas of, uh, you know, industries of concern where we're starting to see, um, this world of kind of cyber issues and cyber risk evolve are in the kind of non-critical industries, um, where you may not have a lot of, uh, information related to your customers, whether that be personally identifiable information, payment card industry information, personal health information, but more kind of the, uh, the business system. So you're, um, Kind of your manufacturing firms that rely on highly automated processes. uh, In the event that uh, a third party can get onto these systems and change pressure valves, can turn on or off uh, heating or cooling systems. They can cause physical damage, insignificant property losses, network interruption issues, which not all uh, all of which would be covered under a a standard property policy. Um, So. It, the, the world of insurance and the risks are changing dramatically. Um, as far as uh, identifying the limits, I, and I think David can add a lot to this too. Uh, there are a couple of different ways. From, from an analytic standpoint, a lot of brokers use this very simplistic peer benchmarking uh, model where you look at a particular industry, you look at a bandwidth of an exposure, whether that be revenue um, or assets, and you simply say, here's what your peers are buying. Some brokers are using a more sophisticated model where they're using client-specific information, number of records, uh, revenue, industry, historical loss information, and running it through a uh, Monte Monte Carlo simulation and and using essentially a probabilistic model to help determine what the appropriate limits are based on actual exposures. and in uh, historical loss information. and really it's coupling those two. Um, it, it's been a little bit hard to you know have full confidence in saying this is the limits that I should be buying, this is the limit I should be uh, retaining. But coupling those two that probabilistic model with a kind of peer benchmarking um, is, is how a lot of our clients you'll know, feel that they're most comfortable purchasing limits. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I, I think just to follow up on a couple of things uh, Brian said. I mean, you're really understanding what you have <clears throat> and the risk related to what you have is is absolutely critical uh, in order to being able to determine, you know, what kind of coverage you need. And Brian made another good point that I think people tend to think about, you know, information security, you know, sort of in the lens of just consumer information and they tend to they tend to think, well, you know, we're not really we're not really holding any of that data, so this doesn't affect us and we're sort of immune. But, you know, if you look at the evolution of uh, the risks related to security and data I mean data is really the company 's cash i mean in, in no matter what form it 's really in, whether it 's proprietary or it 's consumer data, so you know how secure you are is really how well you 're protecting your your data cash and then you know for industries that are that are more complex and are, are starting to get into you know the internet of things and are have connected systems um, and that are vulnerable to um, you know all manner of of disruption through um, bad security. I um, really need to be thinking more broadly about the risk and the implications of, of the devices they're creating or the systems that they're maintaining and um, how those could be affected by by poor security.
0: Brian, talk about EMV compliance. What is it? And if, if I am EMV compliant, do I still need cyber liability? I'm guessing yes, because we're talking about things well beyond payment data um, as far as things that you know, pieces of information that could expose me to risk. But what is it? And if I have it, do I still need my cyber liability?
2: We get this question a lot from, from our clients as, as certainly from the risk management field where they, uh, they kind of perceive uh, when they become EMV compliant, uh, there's no longer a need or a significantly reduced risk associated with uh, with cyber liability. EMV compliance refers to uh, EuroPay, MasterCard, and Visa, and the general shift of liability from card issuers to merchants for fraudulent um, card-present transactions. And and so this is this was a big thing back in October of 2015 when it was uh, when it was first instituted, and the deal was um, you. know, uh, car merchants were required to implement hardware and software systems that could essentially read the chips right. in, uh, in the cards that a-, a lot of us are familiar with now, even before the EMV shift, cyber liability policies typically wouldn't cover, uh, losses where fraudulent data was presented to a mer- merchant. Cyber liability policies, uh, uh, respond to generally respond to losses, um, where a, uh, a merchant's liability, uh, I'm sorry, the cyber liability policies respond to a merchant's liability for payment card data stolen from the merchant, not when fraudulent data is presented mm-hmm, to them. Mm-hmm. So the, this EMV, um, Kind of compliance EMV liability shift really has had zero impact on uh, what cyber policies will actually pay out. Now, what it does is the underwriters still like to ask the question. They still like to understand if an organization is EMV compliant because it 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 shows kind of how adept they are to. Um, kind of being overall compliant with their organization and how serious they're taking right. kind of these changing regulations.
0: Do I park my car in the garage? Do I have a home alarm system? All those things can decrease my policy costs. And sounds like it's similar.
2: It doesn't have a direct impact on the policy premium simply because it, it has historically never been, mm. you know, part of uh, a potential loss that an underwriter would pay out on. I see. Um, But it does tie into um, just one's overall awareness of, of the issues that could uh, lead to losses from, a, you know, whether it be to a card issuer or to, to a consumer.
0: So if, and when that event occurs, a breach has happened, we've uncovered it. Now we know ABC, what do I need to do?
2: First thing I would say is consult your incident response plan. So if, <laughs> if, I'm not sure if, uh, if we've stressed the importance of, of having one of those in place. Um, from, from the insurance side, you consult your incident response plan. You contact your management uh, team as outlined in the incident response plan. You contact a forensic investigation firm. If you're purchasing a cyber liability policy, most of those will cover the costs associated with a forensic investigation firm, uh, contact outside legal counsel, uh, law enforcement if necessary, and then your insurance broker for the purpose of reporting the claim and starting to get uh, you know the insurance proceeds covered.
1: Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. I think that's exactly that's exactly the correct process. And hopefully, you know, you have coverage. If you don't have coverage, the process is a little bit different. I mean, because, you know, most of these expenses you're going to be taking on yourself. And, um, you know, it's good to have already sort of pre-developed relationships and some things in place to be able to determine, you know, can I, put a, can I try to put a number on this before we get too far uh, down the road? But you know, I thought Brian said it very good, uh, very well about, you know, what the process should look like.
0: And since nowadays, many of the attacks on enterprises are automated, they're just looking for IPs and then seeing if they can crack into them and then go from there with regards to how far they can take that penetration. It's not like that 80s movie War Games where a kid sitting on the other end of the phone trying to dial in, right? It's, it, it, it really is a legitimate threat to businesses large and small. And, and as our experts, Brian Mikes and David Katz, have been explaining to us today, it really makes sense to begin to have a plan in place, get with folks like Brian and David and their staffs to evaluate what, what measures do you have in place from a technology perspective to prevent or mitigate the chance that someone could actually penetrate deeply into your network and get access to vital data of your, of your business as well as your customers And then also to have a plan in place for what to do when it comes time, if that event happens for you and your business, that you are then able to clear headed, walk A, B to C and cover all your bases so that then at that point you are further mitigating your exposure legally uh, to your customers and other folks who would have an interest in that data having been uh, compromised. So before I let you guys go, we have some final thoughts before we get you back to
1: the office. No, I just, uh, you know, I think it's really important that, um, you know, executives really think long and carefully about uh, the risk that they're uh, exposed to by virtue of the, the environment and uh, the nature of the activity that we're seeing in the market and, and have a good plan, be able to, uh, you know, be able to really sit down and think, <clears throat> along with um, their teams about how best to handle these risks.
2: Yeah, and the only thing I would add is that it, it's a long and continuous process to, to having a uh, you know, best-in-class security posture. It's not, a, it's not an overnight solution, um, and once you're there, you're, you're not done with it. So it, it's just a process of staying on top of it, making sure that you're dedicating the right time to it, and you're dedicating the right resources to it. Um, you know, it takes time and it takes money. Um, whether that be by investing in people, investing in technology, uh, it, it's, it's a continuous
0: process. And when you look at an event that happened with the targets of the world, the Home Depots of the world, I'm fairly confident that the expense and time needed to sit down with you, you right now. To say, what, what do we look like and what do we do in case it happens? And that kind of thing is probably far less than what their actual <laughs> payout was and, and uh, total loss when that happened before.
1: Yeah. And, and those are questions that you want to be answering without the threat of litigation, without the threat of regulatory inquiry. Those are answers you want to know before you're being asked by a third party. So very, very important.
0: Well, thank you guys for taking some time. Great information. Um, I hope our folks will turn around and share this. And if you are coming back and checking out the podcast in the upper left-hand corner of the Midtown Business Radio Show page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the podcast lives. You can subscribe to us. And that way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device in your podcast. You can check it out on your way to work, walking the dog, whatever the case may be. And as I said, we're Hopeful that you will turn around and put this out on your LinkedIn page, your social media sites, uh, your website, so that someone that you care about, their business might just get a better protection level for having gotten access to the conversation today. So we'll say thank you in advance for that. Brian and David, I really appreciate sitting down with you all today. It's been a great conversation.
2: Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you.
0: And uh, everybody out there that made us a part of their day today, I want to say thanks so much. We really appreciate your time. We look forward to catching up with you same time, same place next week. We'll see you then.